0: Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity. Today, we are revisiting an interview from 2015 with Tony Olwick. He's the founder of innovation consulting firm Strategen, and has spent decades pioneering the jobs-to-be-done method for product design, as well as his outcome-driven innovation process. That process is chronicled in Tony's best-selling book, What Customers Want. In this interview, Intercom co-founder and chief strategy officer Des Trainer catches up with Tony to get his take on why the popular Silicon Valley innovation strategy of pivot and fail fast is flawed, how to identify and map the job to be done, and much, much more. So let's head over to studio to Des Trainer and Tony Ulwick. My
1: first question to you is a quote you had a while ago where you said that pivoting and failing fast are not great techniques that produce innovation. We're here in San Francisco, the land of pivoting, the land of failing fast. What's wrong with pivoting and
2: failing fast? Well, it's uh, associated with failure, unfortunately. Uh, When you think about innovation, what you're trying to do is to come up with solutions that address unmet needs. And... um, the way I love thinking about this is more like you're trying to solve an equation. It's a big math problem. And on one side of the equation, well, I should say, um, like any good equation, there's constants and variables in the equation. Right. And in this equation, what's the variable? What's the constant? Most people would tell you that they're both variables. Needs are ever-changing. Solutions are ever-changing. So you can never solve the equation. And this is why I think companies go down the pivot, fail fast kind of mentality to say, well, if we can't figure out what the needs are, let's just keep coming up with solutions and guess and you know, keep pivoting. We'll fail fast until we get it right. Like um, a brute force approach, sort of? It is. I mean, it's a, it's a guess, right? So in any given market, you know, there might be 100 needs, 15 might be unmet, and you're just hoping that you're coming up with a solution that addresses those 15 unmet needs. And the chances of you randomly doing that are pretty slim. So that's why you have to pivot and fail fast and iterate and and get there slowly. And most companies just don't get there. And that's an approach. It's just a, a time-consuming, wasteful approach that uh, is unnecessary. Uh, our thought is, why should you fail at all? I mean, the goal should be to know what those fifteen unmet needs are up front, and then just spend your time trying to come up with solutions that address them. The way I like saying it is, you know, if, if there are fifteen unmet needs in a market, what are the chances if you randomly coming up with a solution? that addresses those 15 unmet needs, if you don't know what they are. Right. Not good. But flip it around. You know, what are the chances of you solving and satisfying 15 unmet needs if you know exactly what they are? Right. And that's really the essence of what outcome-driven innovation is all about. So, I mean, it sounds
1: too good to be true in a sense, right? Like, I guess the pivot and fail fast folks would argue that, like, they do this because they've yet to find a method that presents to them on a silver platter these unmet needs. It is like... You know, they often say, like, a problem well-stated is a problem half-solved. Is it one of those type of things like where, you know, you have to research so much to understand the unmet need
2: that then the solution becomes obvious? Is it that type of situation? Well, it is. And I think people, Einstein said something to the effect that, you know, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I would spend the first 55 minutes defining the problem and the last five minutes solving it. And this is pretty much the same thing. What we're really trying to do is to define exactly what are those unmet needs. What is the problem that the customer is trying to solve? And uh, the answers become pretty apparent. I'll give you a good example. When we worked with um, Bosch helping them create their CS20 Circular Saw, we spent uh, two months defining and uncovering the unmet needs in one segment of the market. And this was interesting because Circular Saws have been around for a long time, commodity-type market, and they weren't sure that there were any unmet needs. And when we looked at the market as a whole, we didn't see any unmet needs either. So we segmented the market around unmet needs and found a segment of customers that struggled more than others to get mm. the job done. And the reason they did is because they had to make more finish cuts. So they had to make more blade height changes. They had right. to make more blade angle changes. And because they had uh, encountered these different variables that cause complexity, they were underserved along a number of different dimensions, so, we discovered that segment. We discovered which uh, precise unmet needs they were struggling with, and they came up with the CS20 Circulus on to address those needs. Now, it took us two months to identify those needs and prioritize them, but it took the engineers three hours to come up with the solutions that address them. Three hours. Wow. Now, the reason is, as they said, well, we've had all these ideas before, but the problem is, we've had thousands of ideas before. And we didn't know that these were the 14 of the several thousand ideas that we had that really were meaningful.
1: Right. You said that, you know, one of the sentences there, it sounds almost like a sleight of hand. We segmented the market around unmet needs. What does that look like? How do you do that?
2: Well, this is one of the key elements uh, and advancements in our approach. It starts with the fact that customers do have unmet needs. Makes Mm -hmm. sense, right? And uh, Marketing 101 suggests that uh, you want to discover segments that have different unmet needs. Right. Now, if you're going to discover segments of customers with different unmet needs, what is it that you should segment around? I guess attitudes, yeah. Behaviors, demographics, psychographics, yeah. or unmet needs. Right. I mean, unmet needs is obvious. So <laughs> That's right. It is obvious, <laughs> but it's so obvious, but it's not done that way, right. right? Not usually. And so our take is that if you want to discover segments of unmet needs, then segment around unmet needs. Uh, the problem, though, is that in most companies, there's not agreement on what a need even is. Right. And in most research methods, they don't prescribe what a need statement is. It's the most critical input into the innovation process, yet the definition of what it is is extremely vague in most situations. I've seen ethnographic work done where you get you know, 300 pages of detailed information, but where are the needs in there? What constitutes a need statement? What are the characteristics of a good need Input: What structure does it have to have? What context does it have to have? What syntax does it have to have? All those questions go ignored in most cases. So if we can't agree on what a need is, then it's going to be really hard to agree on what the customer's needs are and which ones are unmet and what segments of customers exist with different unmet needs. So although it sounds simple, it is marketing 101. It all goes back to why aren't we doing it this way? Well, it's because we can't agree on what a need is. And what we've spent uh, two decades on is trying to answer that key question. What's a need? The way we describe it, it's a desired outcome statement. Mm-hmm. And the way we define that is when people buy products to get jobs done, they use a set of metrics to judge how well they're getting the job done. Mm-hmm. Those metrics that they use to measure value and success from getting a job done are the customer's needs. And we call those metrics desired outcome statements. Right. And they have a very specific a set of characteristics, they have a specific structure, format, content, and so on.
1: Uh, yeah, I've read in some of your work, like you've phrased it, like uh, I remember reading about some of the work you did on, I think was it surgical implements, where it was like, you know, minimized the amount of time spent. Uh, is, when you say they have a precise structure, are you really saying like that they're objective and they include no opinion by the customer, is that right? Or
2: Well, they certainly include no opinion on yeah, a solution. Yeah. Uh, one of the key characteristics of an outcome statement is that they're free from a technology reference or any solution or approach. Right. Because the goal of innovation, again, is to come up with solutions that address unmet needs. Yeah. So if you're going to customers to understand their needs and they're offering up solutions or technologies or ideas, then you're getting the wrong input. Mm-hmm. And now we know that sounds simple mm-hmm. and most most people recognize that, yet you know, more than half of the outcomes or, or need statements that we review, that you know our clients bring to us from previous research, are they're, they're just embedded with need statements. Yeah. It's very hard to walk away from the ideas first mentality yeah. and come up with you know, perfect need statements.
1: So when you say like, so uh, what would a classic thing be here? Like you know somebody who wants to like manage projects, that like their idea statement would be something like, I need to minimize the amount of time I spend scheduling things in my calendar, or like is it that they embed their ideas about the solution in their statement of their need
2: is that right that's exactly right and and just like in that statement you mentioned in their calendar uh, why does it have to be a calendar Uh, you've assumed part of the solution in your need statement we would never allow that kind of thing right right Uh, and that that happens all the time
1: when you're doing research how would you pick out the people who have unmet needs you start with just general satisfaction with the product area or
2: well before we come up with the unmet needs we have to come up with the needs right and that's that takes the longest period of time right to do that we create what we call a job map so uh, for for those of you out you know who have done business process work and process improvement I think you can relate to this because what we literally do is uh, define the job to be done as a process you know it's a set of tasks that people go from beginning to end to accomplish a goal and what we do is we break down that job into job steps and for a given job there might be 15 20 different steps And then within each step, there's a series of metrics people use to measure success when getting that step of the job done. So, for example, if you're listening to music as the job, and one of those steps might be to organize the music. And one of the outcomes might be minimize the time it takes to organize the songs in the order in which you want to hear them. Right. For example.
1: Yeah. And so minimize the amount of time it takes to organize this. So there is, there is no prescriptive...
2: There's no uh, prescriptive way of doing it. You're right. not referring to yeah. records or CDs or yeah. iPods or, you know. Yeah. It's agnostic to the technology. Right. And it's hard to do. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's hard to do. It just takes practice. Cool.
1: And I guess sort of a second sort of question is, um, how do you stop yourself from, like, falling onto a very abstract definition of a need, like an... You know, how do you stop, like, business solutions from, like, make me more successful being
2: the core need, right? Like... Sure. And we see this all the time where um, it just gets carried away. Jobs are functional. Right. Well, let's say it this way. Jobs that require products and services to address them are very functional. Right. And so we like to define the job that people are trying to get done in a functional manner. Now, that's not to say they don't have emotional jobs they're trying to get done while they're getting that job done. Sure, if you're um, you know, listening to music or throwing a party, sure, you want to be perceived in a certain way mm-hmm. by your friends. You want to be perceived as successful. You want to be perceived as uh, appreciated. Uh, there's a whole series of things that mm-hmm. you want. But you're not designing a product to make someone feel appreciated or to be successful. Mm-hmm. You can't. Like with that, with no context. Like, What if I were to say, let's design a product to make someone feel successful. Yeah. It's, it's lack of context. Uh, there's no function associated with it. Uh, so what we like to do is define the job around the functional element that you're trying to accomplish. Right. When we do our research, we do capture emotional mm-hmm. jobs that you're trying to get done while getting that functional job done. Mm-hmm. But what we do is we, we understand the functional job the customer's trying to execute, like listen to music, mm-hmm. break that down into component parts or steps, and then look at the metrics they use to measure value in getting the job done. So that's one key thing. But you know, it's, it's, there's more to it than that. Yeah, for sure. Um, when, when we think about customers, and this is often the first question, people say, well, who are our customers? We have lots of customers. So how do we even get started? Well, it's true. Companies have lots of customers. So, uh, and they come from you know, with, with different titles to make it even more complicated. But in a general nature, uh, rather than looking at your customers, let's look at what kind of metrics do you need to create a perfect product? Let's ask that question. So when we think about the kind of metrics you need to create a perfect product, we need the metrics that people are going to use to judge the functional value of the product to get the job done, to listen to music. Uh, We need to get the financial metrics that people are going to use to decide whether they should buy streaming services or an MP3 player, the cost of ownership, the cost of replacement, the cost of upgrade. And they are also going to uh, use a set of what we call consumption chain metrics uh, to judge value. People have to receive their products, set them up, install them, uh, interface with them, maintain them, upgrade them, replace them. Uh, People aren't buying it so they can maintain and and update it. They're buying it to get this functional job done. But they do have metrics that they use to judge value around those consumption chain elements as well. So if you understand all the metrics people are using to judge the value of your product from a functional perspective, from a financial perspective, and from a consumption chain perspective... Mm -hmm. Now you have all the metrics you need to create a better product. Then the question is, who are you going to go get those metrics from? Right. That's who your customers are, Mm -hmm. right? And so rather than saying, okay, is it the nurse? Is it the surgeon? Is it the hospital administrator? Is it the OR manager? Uh, It might be all those. But if you're creating a product for a surgeon to use, are you going to go to the nurse to get the functional outcomes? No, you're going to go to the surgeon to get the functional outcomes because they're the ones that know what they're trying to use the product for. Right. Who are you going to go to to get the financial metrics from? The surgeon? Probably not, because they're not concerned about the financial elements. They're concerned about the functional. But the OR manager or the buying group, they would be concerned about minimizing length of stay or minimizing the cost of tools and things like that. And then who might be involved in minimizing the time it takes to set up the product or time to sterilize? Well, that could be the nurse or the biomedical engineers. So we apply who's doing the job after we define what kind of metrics do we need to create a great product.
1: Right. That's a really interesting point about considering the various players involved in a purchase. So in the example you gave, obviously, was medicine. But, like, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about, like, the consumerization of the enterprise and how, like, a lot of products, take something like Dropbox, it's... it's initially bought and experienced by a person who has the problem but maybe not maybe like later on it gets to the cio Mm -hmm. or, or whoever makes the bigger purchases or signs like enterprise contracts how should like if you're working on a software product today that you intend to sell into like larger companies how do you like apply this logic how do you like identify the key people who are involved in a purchase
2: Sure. So let's say you're, you know, for most software products, you're creating it to create some functional value for a department. You know, it could be the agile development team. It could be the HR department, accounts receivable. Yeah. Take your pick. But it's it's very functional in nature. And you want to understand the functional metrics that the users of the product need in order to get that HR job done or get the agile development job done and so on. So, of course, that's a critical set of metrics that you'd go to that set of users for. Then when it comes down to the financial metrics, you ask, well, who makes the buying decision? Who can I extract those financial metrics from? It could be a a director in the area. It could be a VP in an area. It could be the CIO. And you may do qualitative work and find that out and talk to all three types of people and say, are you involved in that kind of decision? And if so, what was the last purchase decision that you made it was for you know one software product versus another software product what criteria did you use to decide between the two what were the financial metrics or considerations that you made and extract the financial metrics that way and then when it comes to supporting the app Mm -hmm. and maintaining it and upgrading it well the user's generally not going to do that it's going to be the it department so you'd have to go to the it department to understand those metrics yeah
1: that's um, an interesting sort of, well, you know, one thing we haven't drilled into yet is um, how good are users at
2: explaining what their unmet needs are? Well, you said unmet needs, but let's oh, on needs, that, needs. On the say, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, how good are they at explaining their needs? Uh, they're good at explaining their needs. To understand the unmet needs across a broad range of the population is something different. But um, I think the real question is uh, that you're asking is yeah. how difficult is it for an individual to express their desired outcome statement. And I, I guess, yeah, format. that's
1: because like what's in my head is like I'm sure I've made decisions on music products based on minimizing time to create a playlist. Sure, but like I don't think that was the active part of my. I mean, maybe it was, but I certainly I don't have like oh I can't create this playlist in under two point four
2: seconds. That no, that's right. That's right. But you did, like you said, somewhere along the line, you used that metric to judge right. value, and that's right. So you probably used. You know, 50 60 70 metrics mm-hmm. over the years mm-hmm. to judge why this product versus that product right. and I, I'm not going to say they're subconscious because they're not really it's right. just not that not at the front of your mind yeah. and this is why it's really important to create uh, the job map right it's to remind you of all the steps you had to go through to get that job done you know uh, if the surgeon is preparing the patient positioning them and accessing the place they're going to operate and you know, perform the procedure you know, there's lots of steps that they're going through but I like picking on surgeons because they are so process oriented. You know they've gone through the same process so many times, performed the same procedure over and over again, right. and they know exactly step by step what they're trying to do as they're going through that process. And as you take them on that journey and remind them of all the steps they're going through, they can go deep into detail on each step and we ask them specific questions about each step. It's interesting because you know, the way to get a job done better is to get it done faster. Mm-hmm more predictably, uh, with higher output and throughput. So it's faster, no variability, right. 100% efficiency. That would be right. perfect, right? And so um, when we ask questions about each of those steps, we, we ask what is so time-consuming about this step or what right. makes it unpredictable, what makes it unreliable. Right. And, and we, we get at these very specific things that we're looking for and what makes it inefficient. And th- that kind of questioning leads to you know, good outcome statements. Right. And when we have a complete list of outcome statements, from beginning to end in a job, it's like the chronological order of everything they're considering in order as they're getting the job done.
3: The
1: criteria you had there of like either more predictable or faster or um, more efficient—how localized is that to surgeons? Like, is is dental surgery is kind of a binary outcome, like we did it successfully
2: or not? Like, well, those three uh, are really uh, valid across any job. Right. So whether it's a software job, software-related yeah. job, if it's you know, performing some HR yeah. function or if it's creating agile code, or yeah. it's uh, the same yeah. set of circumstances, right? Like when you create an agile code, yeah. you want to make yeah. sure you yeah. can perform certain steps quickly, yeah. reliably, so things yeah. don't go wrong, yeah. and with high output throughput, so there's no yeah. defects. And
1: in- Do you think the quality of the execution is captured in, in the three you said there in terms of predictability speed? Like... There's many ways to it, you know, to say manage a project, right? Or there's many ways to like track your employee time or to run HR tools or whatever. But some of them are probably better in terms of like better designed or like better experience or whatever than others. Do you feel is the goal of the design in that regard? It just it aids
2: either efficiency or it aids predictability. Well, it's interesting that you bring it up this way. So there's really when we think about designing software, mm-hmm. there's two parts of design. One is getting the right function, and the other part is getting the right interface, yeah. and you have to do both, obviously. Yeah. So you know, getting the right function is really important before you start coding, Right. Uh, otherwise yeah. you're, you're not yeah. going to be coding the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> so you really want to make sure that you understand the customer's needs, uh, have the right features, you know, you're, really, you're, you're really thinking this thing through. And once you have the feature concept in place, then you go start developing. That's that's often when you start focusing on the interface, yep. and the interface has a whole set of design rules as well. We've looked at this a number of times in the past. Like some segments of the markets prefer that they can see all the options at once. All right. Uh, so, they don't mind seeing five different things. And that's mm-hmm. why there's drop down bars yeah. and things like that. So, you can just look and say, oh, here's all my options. Uh, there are a series of rules that you can follow, and they're outcome related mm-hmm. yeah, minimize the time it takes to see my options, minimize the likelihood yeah. of making a wrong choice. Yeah. And so on. So you go all through the options are, yeah, yeah. Right. And we've done work for companies in the past where they wanted to flush out what are, what is that complete set of outcomes that people have when they're interfacing with a uh, software tool. Yeah. So, uh, it's possible to capture them. We've done mm-hmm. it. Um, and then you figure out, you know, in your particular market, which yeah. of those needs are unmet. Yeah. And that's done quantitatively.
1: Yeah. When you talk about like, um, so when I, I've seen like previous examples, and we'll share some within the podcast itself in the show notes of like uh, outcome statements. And you, you seem to assign each of them a importance value and a satisfaction value. And uh, we'll get into what you do with those in a little bit. But how,
2: how do you ascertain that number? Okay, so it's um, done through a statistically valid quantitative research with the customer. Okay. So it's not done by our client. Mm-hmm. Uh, we create a survey. Uh, it might have 100, 150 different outcome statements in it. Yeah. And we've created a way to get all those inputs uh, from customers in a pretty quick yeah. period of time. Uh, we've been using the similar t- techniques. We've been doing this 25 yeah. years. So yeah. we we've, we've make it better and better over time. Uh, we try to make sure that questionnaires are done uh, you know, fairly quickly, twenty-five, yeah. thirty minutes, which is fairly lengthy. But and we often pay people to take yeah. the surveys, and we have uh, good quality control checks to make sure that people aren't finishing a twenty-five minute yeah. survey in five minutes. Just, yeah, uh, acing it with like ten. Everything's important. So like <laughs> um, yeah, and that is interesting. I mean, uh, you know, what we've discovered is that uh, in most markets, maybe ten to fifteen percent of those taking surveys are fudging their way through Mm -hmm. the data set. But they're eliminated, so we don't worry about that. But um, we take that good set of data, and from that we can figure out which of the needs are important and unsatisfied. And I think what you're referencing is the opportunity algorithm that we created years back. And it's a very simple concept. It's saying that a need is unmet if two conditions are met, if that need's really important and it's not well satisfied. And if those two conditions are met, then we call that an unmet need.
1: And you, you have a slightly, I guess, I mean, you know, I think in most people's heads, they'd be like, oh, well, you know, it must be the difference between satisfaction and, and importance. But the calculation of it's slightly more uh, complex than that. It's like it's for sure it's the difference between satisfaction and importance. So like a random example, let's to make this grounded. If we were talking about, say, the music thing of minimizing the time to play songs in an order, Mm-hmm. I guess I can't say create a playlist because that prescribes a solution as well, right? <laughs> I'm getting there. Um, so if it's minimised time to play songs in a certain order, what this would look like? True, like you would survey a lot of potential users or actual users, actual no, users, actual users, yeah. and would would they provide a rating on how like you'd give them an outcome statement and ask them to rate it? Is that uh, broadly what it is like?
2: That's broadly what it is. So you made a couple of great points. Yeah. Um, we have to interview users versus non-users because non-users aren't getting the job done, yeah. and they may not have the experience to know what's yeah. important and the satisfied with yeah. getting the job done. Uh, the other interesting thing is we ask people what product are they using to get the job yeah. done. So do you own a particular type of MP3 player, or are you yeah. using a certain you know, streaming service? So we know the answers to that. And then we, then we say, using XYZ, how satisfied are you with your ability to you know, minimize the time it takes to get the songs in the correct gotcha. order? And so this gives us insight into uh, strengths and weaknesses of different technologies yeah. and solutions, and what that allows you to do is to figure out you know, what steps you need to take to catch up to a competitor. Yeah. But more importantly, you're looking for opportunities that yeah. nobody's addressing. Yeah. So you know, the question there is, what can we do to leapfrog our competitors? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why we're capturing yeah. that data and looking at it in that fashion.
1: So you know the outcome of, of let's say our hypothetical statement there might be like to play songs in a certain order quickly might have an importance of say eight and a satisfaction of say like four, right? Right. Now the naive thing to do here is like eight minus four, but like what you're what you're saying is that like there's there's two conditions and they're both represented in the formula.
2: That's right. That's two conditions it has to be important. Yeah. And then relative to its importance it has to have low satisfaction. Right. That's why in the algorithm it's yeah. importance plus the importance minus the satisfaction. Right. So it's gotta be important plus there has to be a big difference between the importance and yeah. satisfaction. So it's not traditional gap analysis, uh, which has been used forever. Uh, But the other thing, it's, you know, people criticize gap analysis and our algorithm. And I think the reason they criticize it is because they're so focused on solutions. Like they think, well, what's the importance of having this solution? And what's Mm -hmm. your satisfaction with this solution? We're not asking that question, right? And so people say you're subtracting, you know, apples from oranges. Well, you would be if you were in solution space. But we're not in solution space. We're in need space. And we're saying, when it comes to minimizing the time it takes to get your songs in the right order, how important is that action? And how satisfied are you that you can do that given the technology you're using? Perfectly legitimate questions. And they were saying, relative to how important it is that you achieve that goal, how satisfied are you with the ability to do that? Uh, So it's really worked well. Uh, We've studied it a lot more over the years. Just a few fun facts. Uh, we discovered that it's about 93% accurate. Right. Uh, it's inaccurate in the midpoints where you have importance and satisfaction about equal to each other. Okay. So we've tried to create better methods to make it more accurate. We've never created anything that gets it 100% accurate. Right. Uh, we've got up to 97%, 98%. But even at that, it gets so complicated that it becomes really hard to explain. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the values of our approach is that it's... Pretty simply explained, yeah. uh, and we want to keep it simple, yeah. but we want to keep it very effective.
1: The yeah, additional complexity is not worth it. it. Yeah. yeah, like one thing that's going through my head is like, you know, as a sort of naive person to this space, and I guess to like economics and rationality of purchasing, are there areas where customers are ill-equipped? Because let's say in the world of like luxury goods, it might be trickier for a customer to actually speak truly about why they're spending so much money on a necklace or a jacket or you know a car or something like that like do you think a think there are irrational purchases and two if there are irrational purchases as in purchases that don't make logical functional sense right Right. and then if there are does this
2: method still work in that area Mm -hmm. it's a great question so i like thinking about that as two separate jobs so people go through the job of purchasing something Mm -hmm. right and so Typically, when you go to purchase something, you look and you start considering the functional metrics, the financial metrics, consumption metrics, and the emotional jobs that you're trying to satisfy. And at the point of purchase, you're going through the purchase process. You may make an impulse purchase that isn't really that wise, and people would say that's an emotional decision, Mm -hmm. and it very well may be. The emotional decision is coming at the point of purchase. Now, that's very different than... Going to figure out from a customer, how do they measure value in getting the job done? Now, even if they made a, an emotional purchase, once they bring that product home, they're going to go use it to get right. X job done. Now, are they satisfied with their ability to get the job done using that product? That's what we're concerned with. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and we study both. We study the purchase process and we study the functional metrics people use right. when getting the job done. But think about the purchase process as a separate job.
1: That's really interesting. So what that would say to me is like, there's the two things that become obvious. One is that like, you know, you shouldn't build a product just because people make bad purchasing decisions. You like that does not therefore mean you should you should design or, or bank on them, right? Like they're they're probably like. That's right. Yeah.
2: That's a short-term strategy. Right? Yeah. I mean, it may get you a few impulse purchases, like the yeah. Pet Rock did, and yeah. people would say that was a fad. And yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, Satisfied some emotional yeah. jobs in the short term, but there was no real function there, right. so the product doesn't go on because there's no real value associated with it.
1: Right. And then I guess the other piece of it is, like assuming that the purchase had a any type of function at its core, which you have to presume it would, right? It's not sheer altruism. They're still going to evaluate it, like, you know, so let's say all the marketing and all the hype and all the like sort of impulse and the amazing salesperson got them to make an impulse purchase, and now they've bought a, themselves a car they don't need or a yacht they don't want. They're still going to evaluate it later on, based on the grounds of it being a car or a yacht, and it's like, well, does it get me to A or B? If I still have that need, then you know. So I guess what I'm saying is like, there's a difference between like what feels good to buy and what feels good to use, right?
2: Exactly, and um, I think you know I've seen. The confusion between uh, are those lines blurred in many cases where just like the argument goes you know people make uh, emotional decisions they might but that's in the purchase process so don't let that emotional decision affect the way you approach innovation
1: right 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 for sure I think it's also there's probably you know I'm just thinking of like like you know champagne in Vegas or something like that there's probably goods where like the the purchase is actually the product if you know what I mean like the celebration of the purchase is actually more important than like no one's taking the ROI of the champagne after they've bought it right So
2: I can tell you're talking from yeah. first-hand experience
1: you've you drank a lot of champagne in Vegas <laughs> no
2: I, I was assuming you did but
1: oh, <laughs> uh, no I, I'm not I I guess I'm just trying to I'm trying to think of like of like sheer irrational purchases but like like sometimes you'll buy things to be seen purchasing them or and like and that's actually what you're doing it for sure
2: now you see that you know what you know in the nightclub life Mm -hmm. you see that happen all the time people just making the wild purchases because they want to be perceived in a certain way
1: yeah and that's actually you know and and like they are probably evaluating it based on that like a bottle of budweiser will not do the same job
2: as a bottle of Moe. that's right but they're trying to get a job done and a lot of times it may not just be emotional too it can be very functional yeah that's interesting
0: The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode.
1: So, one thing that we haven't touched on yet is um, we've talked through, like, say, the job map. We've talked through, like, needs. How you can measure which needs are met, which needs aren't met. How you can actually identify opportunities from those. And it's very clear to me that this is useful, not just from a new product generation, but also from like an existing lineup. Like it's in, if we're going to release version four of our product, well, sure. let's try and address what we haven't met with version three, right? Right. One research technique we haven't talked to yet is personas. So when we talk about personas, I'm, I guess I'm typically talking about the persona where you create a user, you create an archetypical user, and you give them an identity and a scenario in which they encounter your product. And the idea is that, you know, or an idea is that it will help inform decisions, design decisions, product decisions you make. Do you do any of that type of work?
2: Well, uh, let's, let's put it in perspective. The question I would ask is, why would you want to create a persona? And uh, I think the answer is that companies are trying to discover different types of users that might have different unmet needs. Mm-hmm. And um, if that's true... Then what they're doing is they're using persona creation as a as a method for market segmentation. Right. Uh, so they're going out and observing what they what appears to be to them different types of users, and they're hypothesizing that because they're different types of users with different demographics and attitudes and so on, that they have different unmet needs, uh, which is where it goes wrong. Right. Um, because that's the bad assumption. And so rather than making bad assumptions, what we do is we segment the market around the unmet needs, as I mentioned earlier. And we can discover segments of customers that struggle more than others to get the job done. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, we did some work for a, a transportation company. And one of the jobs they were focused on is to help business people who have to drive around town to reach their destinations on time. So it's business people driving, reach their destination on time. So um, I think we can all relate to this. Um, But some of us go to the same locations every day. Mm -hmm. We leave at the same time. Mm -hmm. We know the traffic patterns. We know the backup routes. And we really don't struggle that much to reach our destination on time. But others have to go to different parts of the city, like you did today. Uh, You uh, leave at different times. You don't know the traffic patterns. You don't know the backup routes. You're not sure Mm -hmm. where to park. You don't know how long it's going to take to walk from where you park. And because you... Encounter all these different variables that cause complexity. It's causing you to be more underserved in right. getting the job done And this is what we're trying to discover when we segment in the market are there groups of people that struggle more to get the job done so rather than creating a persona based on mm-hmm. Observation we create them based on statistical data, right? So we segment around the unmet needs and then we say okay who are your three personas? If you want to look at it okay. that way, it's you know a group of people who don't have to travel, you know, to a large variety of locations. Okay. They know everything about where they're going to go, so they don't struggle. They don't have many unmet needs, okay. versus another segment on the other extreme that uh, is experiencing the complete opposite. All right now, the difference you could call that a persona. Mm-hmm. But it's a statistically valid persona that you could target effectively yeah. with a product and a marketing campaign, sure. versus a traditional persona which doesn't do that.
1: Yeah, I think maybe the potentially the unspoken value of personas is really that it's like it's a use case to rally a team behind. If you know what I mean, you show it, you put it on a poster, put it on a wall, and people sure. like, oh, okay, we're designing for that person. And
2: well, it does make it easier to design when you know the segment that you're yeah. designing for. Yeah. But the problem with a traditional persona is that it's a phantom target. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a real segment. It's a made-up segment. And so you're just misleading concept. And that's why we don't do that. But uh, yeah. doing it through statistically valid data yeah. and identifying those kinds of segments like I described, now, yeah, you're creating a persona, yeah. but it really exists. Mm-hmm. So if you go after that segment of people who struggle to reach their destination on time, you'll, you'll know yeah. who they are, why they struggle, what their unmet needs are yeah. that are different because they struggle. I mentioned earlier on the Bosch example right. too, and we discovered a segment of of carpenters that that were underserved, and it's because they encountered some additional variables that added complexity to getting the job done, which is they had to make more finish cuts, mm-hmm. so that required them to make more changes in the blade height, blade yeah. angle, and because they have to encounter those different variables and add complexity, they're more underserved. Right, right, and and we find this in all different markets now. The importance of that, I think, uh, can't be understated because if you can find a segment of people that are highly underserved, even in an existing market, you can institute a, a very effective profit share strategy. Uh, think of Nest, yeah. for example. You know, how many people are crazy enough to spend seven times more for a thermostat? Well, the answer yeah. is about 10% yeah. of the market. Yeah. Yeah. But by controlling that 10% of the market, they can control over 30% of the profit share right. in that space. Uh, which is great. Uh, Apple's the master of this twenty you know, yeah. percent market share, ninety percent profit share. Yeah. That's unheard of, but um, but that's the general goal. And the point is, if there is a segment of people that are highly yeah. underserved and willing to pay more, then that makes a really fine target. I was going to come in on one more thing yeah, too. I, I'm excited about this because we've just we've been working on this for about five years, but um, we've been trying to correlate willingness to pay with unmet needs, right? And it makes sense that it does correlate. But what we are trying to figure out and answer specifically is. Which unmet needs will people pay most for? Because we're always asked this question, you know, here's the 15 unmet needs. Will people pay for it? Uh, If so, how much? And which of those needs are really driving their willingness to pay? Uh, So it took us uh, about five years to figure this out. But um, we've been uh, executing that pretty effectively this year, Mm -hmm. and we're really excited about that. So uh, that's one of the newer additions to the approach. We haven't written anything on it yet. Cool. but i do want to share that
1: yeah no, it, it sounds i mean again like intuitively it makes sense that there are, there are some of my needs that people would pay for and um, but like even being able to get probability of the amount of like the amount of energy or pain or whatever that they're willing to invest to solve right. it's definitely interesting one thing that just occurred to me when you're talking about say like the let's say the example of business people trying to get to a certain place on time sometimes i am like today going somewhere i've never been before and i need to get there and i don't know the area and i don't know the neighborhoods i don't know how long to budget i didn't know like, if i could pull up outside or any of those sort of things right and then other times you're like doing a regular trip right that's so right. That, that would imply that like i have different need, needs based on different scenarios is that right that's correct and di- different cases if you will different case so you know would part of the research would it be like to talk through case by case so you be does the same need exist in all cases that's is right. kind of the question and that,
2: Yes, yeah. that's exactly what we do. Yeah. Um, let's talk as an example. Uh, think of a surgical case because yeah. that's actually it's called a case. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so when we do work in, in uh, with medical companies on surgery, yeah. we ask the surgeon to think about their last case,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then then we ask them to describe that case to us. Yeah. What was the patient type, you right. know, uh, comorbidities, You know what, what situation did they yeah. find themselves in? And then when we go through and ask them the importance of yeah. satisfaction, it's related to that case. Right. Now, what that allows us to do is to segment the market around varying cases. If yeah. the case itself is causing right. variability in getting the job done, I
1: see what you mean. That that makes total sense. Yeah. Um, and another question related to that is: um, if you survey, like, say, me and ten of my colleagues, I guess the cases thing might solve this. But what I'm wondering is, like, if a lot of people say like that something is like, its importance is one out of ten, and a lot of people say its importance is ten out of ten. Do you end up in a world where you're
2: describing it as five, even though that represents no one? Well, if you would take all the data together, uh, yeah. that would be a problem. Yeah. And so when, when we get our data back, we ignore the, the broad market view. Right. Because to us, it's meaningless yeah. for the exact reason you describe, And this is why we segment the market. Yeah. Yeah. So before we do anything, we segment the market to see, are there different groups of people with different unmet needs? So yeah. those who rated everything 10, they're yeah. over here. Those yeah. that rated a one are over yeah. here. And now we can analyze them separately and say, why mm-hmm. did that group rate it a one? Oh, they go to the same location every day and yeah. they don't struggle. Versus yeah. the ten, you know, they're, yeah. str- they're struggling. They're struggling. Yeah,
1: yeah. That makes sense. So yeah, so it's kind of you, you kind of you start from the data up routed and
2: top down. That's guess, right. right? Yeah. And this is why it's so important. Uh, Segmentation is so critical yeah. because not everyone struggles in the same way to get a job done. And so if you just assume the market is homogeneous, you're making a big mistake. Right, uh, just like in the case of a circular yeah. side. so I can give you thousands of cases, but uh, it's always the same scenario. Um, that's why we just ignore the total market. Uh, there might be an instance like if the total market were purely homogeneous. In other words, after we segmented the market, all the segments are clustered in the same location, then we would say, you know, you could actually do a broad strategy across the entire market and be successful with every customer we've never seen that <laughs> yeah. but theoretically yeah. it's possible theoretically a, a pot of
1: gold yeah. so i guess i mean like to to go through it from the start it's like you know it's it's job map it's identifying needs it's it's researching needs it's segmenting by case yeah. it's identifying opportunity and then Lastly, I guess, designing a solution. And I presume you can inform marketing as well like in terms of what you should speak to.
2: Yeah. There's really two main uses of the data. One is to create the market strategy, mm-hmm. a market sales strategy, and the other is to create the product strategy. Right. And when we think about the product strategy, we typically go through a protocol mm-hmm. that says, you know, before you invent anything, let's exhaust the other possibilities. One possibility is your product already does the job. Yeah. You just didn't message around that. Just need to tell people. Just need to tell people. And yeah. we've seen a few situations like that. Yeah. Uh, the first occurrence of that was back in, like, 94, 95 right. time frame with Cordis Corporation making angioplasty balloons. Yeah. They had 1% market share. Uh, we discovered that they were satisfying about five unmet needs, better than yeah. anybody. And so they revamped their marketing, messaging, armed their salespeople with the right message. And they increased their market share from you know, 1% to 5% in six months. Just by telling people? Just by telling people. That's amazing. We have another great story, too, a more recent one with uh, Arm & Hammer's Animal Nutrition Group. Right. Uh, we worked with them late 2013. They revamped their sales marketing activities in 2014 and generated 30% year-to-year revenue growth, right. which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And they did it without changing their product or without changing the pricing. It's all based on aligning what you're doing with yeah. the needs of customers. And in their case, you know, it's dairy nutrition, so you know, they were focused on cow health, cow nutrition, but dairymen are really more focused on optimizing dairy herd productivity. Uh, and they go through this very extensive job to do that, A part of which, you know, healthy cows is critically important. But uh, knowing that and knowing how they could contribute to getting the bigger part of the job done and help them generate some additional revenue growth.
1: That's awesome. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners would love to be told that you don't have to change your product to change your revenue. Well, you can't uh, promise that. But uh, yeah, but it is possible. It, but it is possible. I think you've uh, conclusively outlined an alternative to like, pivoting and failing fast. Uh, this has been really, really interesting.
0: I hope you enjoyed our chat with Tony Olwick. It's one of hundreds of conversations from the Inside Intercom archives, featuring everyone from onboarding expert Samuel Ulick on building better onboarding to UX designer and author Jake Knapp on making time for your most important work. And of course, we have new episodes every Thursday. Speaking of which, see you next week for more Inside Intercom. This is Inside Intercom.